All right. Good morning, guys. Welcome to Riverview. Happy Easter or for Happy Resurrection Day um, for you guys. I want to make that uh, clear. Um, we're glad you're here. Uh, welcome to uh, what we would call, this is kind of our living room. Uh, and this is the place where we do family business together and we get to grow and we get to learn. Uh, so welcome. If you're a visitor with us, we're glad that, that you're here. If it's the first time, second time, if you've been at Riverview for a really long time, we're still glad that you're here. Um, it's Easter. This is a fantastic day where we just kind of get together and to reflect and look back on what God has done and how that impacts us and moves us forward in the life that he's called us uh, to live. Uh, if you've noticed, uh, we have a little sign up here that our creative team uh, put together for us that they did a, a really good job with that. They, they've, they've asked us uh, internally to already start thinking about the question, then what? And, and I'll tell you why that sign is, is up here. Because I believe that our minds are, are wired for stories. And in those stories, our minds, we want details. And if something's missing in the story and we don't have all the details that we want, our minds, they, our brains, they literally cannot handle having all the details. So if your wife freaks out because she's not getting all the details, that's wired into her, okay? If, if your husband is freaking out because he's not getting all the details, guys, that is naturally wired into them. Give each other a little bit of grace. Cut them a little bit of a slack, okay? Um, our minds want details. They want whole stories. And if there are gaps in the story, our brains will do everything that they can to make sure it fills in the gaps. It's really pretty amazing how God has wired our brains to do such a thing like that. Our minds want details and whole stories, loose ends, drive us absolutely crazy. And so we can understand with certainty why we usually want more details in stories, why we want to know what's going to happen and how this thing is going to play out. Think about um, whatever show it is that you're binging right now at home. So some of you right now are kind of freaking out because you can't wait to get home to push play because you're wanting to figure out if, Kobe and T if Toby and Kate are going to make it. Um, you want to know if the Duttons are going to sell off all the ranch or be forced to sell a piece of it. Some of you have been chomping at the bit since Chosen uh, Season 2 ended and you can't wait for Season 3 to get going again. It is natural for us to want to know the details. It's natural for us to want to know what's coming up. I really do, do believe that God wired that into us. Our brains are wired for whole stories. And when there's an absence of information, when we don't feel like we have all the details yet, our brains will actually fill in the gaps with details of its own. And it, to be fair, it doesn't matter if those, if those details are true or not. Our brain just wants a whole story. And so we'll fill in the gaps with whatever details that we actually have in front of us. Let me explain with a bit of an example. A couple of weeks ago, I was really sick. I was laid out in my bed upstairs, the world was spinning, and it just was not good in my house. And I've got to be honest in that front, I'm pretty much a baby, okay, when, when I'm sick. I want everybody to cater to me, I whine and I cry, that's just who I am, just being honest with you, okay? And so I'm laying there in my bed, and my kids are making all kinds of noise downstairs, a blessed noise, right, I'm just making, making all kinds of noise, and I hear them, and, and I'm not mad about it, I just know they're down there, I'm not getting any rest. And, and then all of a sudden, it all gets quiet. And it's quiet for hours. And I'm like, what on earth just happened? Like, where, like, where did they go? And here's the story that my mind starts telling me in, in that, with the absence of details. Nobody came and told me nobody, anybody was leaving. So my mind told me that they don't really recognize that I'm up here sick. They don't care that I'm sick. I might be up here dying. And nobody even cares. They just left. And they don't care about what's going on up here. And so I fumed on that for a little while. And then a couple hours later, everybody comes back in, and I start hearing that blessed noise again. 
And uh, my kids run up the steps and they say, Dad, how are you doing? How are you feeling? And, and, uh, and I said, I'm, I'm doing great. Where would you guys go? And they said, well, we left for a little while so that you could get some rest, so that you could start to feel better. And here's the story that I told myself. I told myself that they don't care about me, they don't love me, that everybody has left, I'm dying and they don't care. The real story with the real details were that they did love me, they did care about me, and they wanted me to get better, and so they gave me the space that I needed in order to do that. Now, in a room this size this morning, obviously it's, it's Easter, and uh, in our room it's pretty full right now, and we've heard a lot of stories about who Jesus is. And with the bits of pieces of information that we have about who Jesus is, our mind tries to put together a, a whole story. And even if we don't have all the details, even if we only have partial details, we'll put together a whole story about who we believe Jesus to be. And, 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 and I don't necessarily want to try to change your mind this morning if you've come in here and you're not a believer in Jesus. Um, well, maybe I do. But here, here's what I want even more this morning. I want us to try to fill in the gaps that we might have about the story of Jesus, and when, specifically when it comes to the story of Easter. I want to try to help us fill in the gaps because every one of us in here, no matter what our background is, no matter where we're coming from, no matter why we're here, if Easter is the only day that we ever show up, we have a story that we tell ourselves about who Jesus is. And because we have a story that we tell ourselves about who Jesus is, I want to make sure the story that we're telling ourselves is actually the same story that Jesus tells us about himself and the one that we should be locking into our, our hearts. And so certainly the story of Easter is full of all kinds of little mini episodes or little mini stories that make up the whole. And if we were to take out any one of those parts, we'd be confused, we'd be missing some of the details. Or if we were to jump in and stop in any, in any middle of one of those parts, we'd have to ask the question, because we are people with brains who want details, we'd have to ask the question, well, what happened next? Like, don't leave me laying in that spot. What happens after that part of the story? There are a lot of then what's when it comes to the story of, of Easter. And so for the next few minutes, what I want to do is I want to try to fill in some of those gaps with what Scripture tells us uh, about the story. And, and so we're going to start with just giving a broad overview of, of Holy Week. Right? Last week started, uh, we, get a, we started getting our minds around the timeline uh, of the Holy Week. We kicked off um, last Sunday with Palm Sunday. And scripture tells us that Jesus, that his sole mission in life was to come and to seek and to save the lost. That's why he stepped out of heaven. That's why he put on flesh. That's why he was walking here on the earth. He was coming here to do one thing, to seek and to save the lost. And on Palm Sunday, Jesus enters into Jerusalem. And as he enters into Jerusalem, people cry out. They cry out, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They were excited that Jesus was coming in into town. And the reason that they were excited and waving palm branches all over the place is because they believed that Jesus was there to save them. They believed that he was coming to rid them of the Roman powers, that he was there to do what they had been longing for for so long. But that was Sunday. What happens after Sunday? Then what? Well, Monday rolls around. Monday rolls around and Jesus goes into Jerusalem and he heads straight to the temple because Jesus had some business to handle in the middle of the temple. And when he gets to the temple, as we talked about last week, he is not happy. And so when he gets to the temple, he sees things that, that don't please him. He sees things going on in his father's house. It's meant to be a place of prayer and sacrifice and worship. And what he does is he starts flipping tables and he starts chasing out the money changers, which is quite the picture that we don't always have of Jesus when we think about praying and we think about spending time with our family and telling each other who Jesus is. And this is the picture that we see of Jesus in the temple 
protecting his reputation and the reputation of, of his father. Now, this was quite a scene in the middle of, of the temple. And you've got to imagine that the, the religious leaders who were there, that this didn't make them happy. This actually made them incredibly furious, ridiculously furious. And so for several chapters, there's a, there's a lot of ink that gets spilled talking about this, this vitriol that goes back and forth between the religious leaders and against uh, Jesus. And so we have to ask the question then, with all this fury going on with the religious leaders, what happens next? What, what, what's going to happen with Jesus and what's going to happen with these religious leaders? Well, Monday ends and then Tuesday comes around. And there's this serious thought now that's being given by the religious leaders. How can we get rid of Jesus? How can we discard of him? How can we kill him? There are thoughts and theories and philosophies going around of how they can get rid of him without uh, facing any type of repercussion from the crowds that would see this going down. And so this day is filled with nonstop drama for Jesus, constant fighting with the religious leaders. They hate him. And all they want to do is figure out a legal way that they can get rid of him, and they can't. And so that infuriates them even more. And so they start meeting in these little secret rooms, and they start thinking about ideas of how they can secretly get rid of Jesus without causing a riot. And so Tuesday is a day that's full of all kinds of drama for Jesus. It's full of dark rooms, and it ends with these secret board meetings that are happening amongst the religious leaders. So what happens next after that? Well, Wednesday rolls around. And Wednesday is not like Monday. It's not like Tuesday. Um, Wednesday actually is a calm day for Jesus because this day is filled actually with relationships. And if you read the Gospels and you hear about the story of Jesus' life, you see that in his very core, Jesus is deeply relational. And so he exits the city and goes to the outskirts of the city to a place called Bethany, and he spends some time with his friends. And he has dinner uh, with them. And as he's having uh, dinner uh, with them. It's just this remarkable scene because one of the friends, um, Mary, Lazarus's sister, she does something that everybody else kind of like kind of poo-poos the idea. Like she, she takes this jar uh, of really expensive oil perfume and she breaks it and she begins to, to pour it over Jesus' head, anointing his body. This is a very tender scene. It's a beautiful scene. She approaches Jesus with this and just begins to pour it over his head, anointing him. And, and this, this causes a bit of a stir within the disciples because they start to react and they yell out like, hey, why are you wasting this? Like, why, 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 are, you, why are you, this stuff is expensive. So why would, you, why would you be wasting this? And Jesus looks at them and says, no, 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 listen, she's not wasting it, okay? She, she, that's not what she's doing. What she's done right now, it's going to be talked about for centuries, what she's doing right now is going to be talked about forever, and we're still talking about it even today. It says, the smell that you smell in the air right now, that oil that's dripping from my brow, that's her preparing my body for death. The smell, the sweet smell of perfume that you smell in the air right now, it's going to be the smell that's going to be covering up death not too long from now. And so while this beautiful scene is going on uh, in this relational time with Jesus and his friends, there's something else going on behind the scenes. There's... Judas, he's selling out Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Judas was one of Jesus' friends. This is one of the disciples. This is one of the, one of the group. And while he is being anointed for death, Judas is going out and is working on preparing how he's going to die. It's incredible how it works out. And when you read this story with fresh eyes, you've got to be thinking, man, I wonder how this is going to play out. I wonder how all this is going to go down. And then... Wednesday ends. 
this episode comes to an end. And then we're left asking the question, then what? What happens next? Well, Thursday comes in. And, and Thursday, Jesus is sitting in the upper room with some of his disciples, and he's celebrating the Passover meal. He breaks away from the meal for a little while, and he bends down, and he washes the disciples' stinky feet. Every single one of them, he washes their feet, not just 11 of them, but 12 of them. And then they spend some time around the table, and they're eating a meal together, and he takes bread at that table, and he breaks, and he talks about how his body is going to be broken for them. And not only for them, but for the entire world. And then after they have some bread, he takes the cup of wine, which is normally talked about in one way, and he gives it full meaning and says, this is the cup of my blood. And it's going to be this blood. It's going to be my blood that's going to be the payment for the sin of the world. And he begins to talk about how his blood is going to be spilled and how it's not going to be just for the disciples sitting around the table, but it's going to be for anybody who would trust in Jesus, who would trust in his blood for their sin. And so this is going down at the table and after this meal is done, they begin to, to take a walk out and they go to the Garden of Gethsemane, which is uh, located within the Mount of Olives. It's a beautiful place. And in that garden, Jesus breaks away from the disciples and says, hey, I want you to stay awake for a while and pray that you may not be entered into temptation. Stay awake and pray. I'm going to go over here and pray. And so he goes into the garden and he prays this deeply intense prayer. And the, the prayer is so intense that scripture tells us there that the sweats on his brow begin to become sweat, drops of, of blood because of the intensity of the prayer that he's praying. And the reason that the prayer is so intense is because he knows what's getting ready to come. He knows that the wrath of the Father is getting ready to be poured out on him. Wrath that they already prepared a long time ago, but now he's actually stepping into it. And it is terrifying to know that you're getting ready to pay for all of sin, all of it, all the penalty of it all of the price of it, all of the sting of it, being able to be poured out on Jesus. And he is praying deeply. And it's there, while that prayer is going down, the disciples, they're all falling asleep. And, Jesus, and Judas, he shows up with the chief priests and some other religious leaders under the cover of darkness with nobody else around, just like Judas and the religious leaders had planned it all along. And Jesus is captured. He's taken away under the cover of the darkness of that night. And he's given the sham trial. And he is relentlessly abused before his death. And in that moment, every single one of the disciples run and flee. They act like they don't know who Jesus is. They act like they haven't been hanging around him for the last three years. They act like their hope hasn't been placed on him. And so they run and they hide. But then what happens next? Friday happens, right? It's the day that we call Good Friday. Jesus is taken home, or he's taken to the home of Caiaphas, who was the high priest at the time. He's taken there. He's questioned with this mock trial. And that trial in Caiaphas' house is designed with one purpose and one purpose only. This is not fair. This is not a judge. This is not a jury of your peers. This is with one intention in mind that they are going to accuse him of, of treachery. They are going to um, lead him to be crucified. The only outcome of this trial is to kill him, to crucify him, and to take him to a cross. And so that night, he's, he's beaten Thursday night onto Friday morning. And obviously, he's found guilty, and, and yet he's done nothing wrong. And as the sun comes up in the morning... He leaves Caiaphas' house, he goes down the hill into the city, and he lands on Pilate's doorstep. And on Pilate's doorstep, he's there because Pilate is the, the governor of Rome. He has the ability, the legal ability to actually kill Jesus. The religious leaders can't do that on their own. They need Pilate to pull the trigger on this. 
And so in this courtyard, amongst his peers and amongst the people that he came to save, there are echoes and loud voices that begin to cry out, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And it reverberates throughout the city. And I believe those words reverberate throughout the world. Crucify him, crucify him. And that's not the worst. The worst is yet to come. Jesus endures the shame of false allegations. He is mocked, he's beaten, and he's sentenced to die by crucifixion on a wooden cross. He's taken then with his arms stretched out and he's nailed to a cross in the most painful way that you can imagine. They make sure that they hit every nerve that they can hit to make it even worse. And so one arm is stretched out and nailed, another arm is stretched out and nailed, and then they take his feet and they do the exact same thing to cause the most, not only emotional pain, but the physical pain possible. And he hangs there on a cross for six hours, fighting off, fighting off suffocation. He's got a criminal to each side of him until eventually he breathes his last. And to make sure that he's actually dead, they take a spear and they drive it into a side where both blood and water flow out, which was the sign that he was actually dead. He didn't just appear to be dead. He was actually dead. And in that moment, right before his last breath has gone, he, he says, it is finished. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. The last words that Jesus gives before his death. So then what? Is that the end? Is that the end of his life? Had people been following for no purpose whatsoever? Because if this is the end, there's a lot of people who are going to be really upset. A lot of people are going to be really disappointed um, who have been following him around for a while. They believe that he was the one that was going to be the savior of the world. They believed that, that he was the one who could give them hope. They believed in him. They thought that maybe that he was actually going to be the one that they had trusted in. And even while he was, laying, he was on the cross giving up his life, they thought maybe that there was hope that he could somehow come off of the cross when they offered, hey, if you're the son of God, come on down. They thought, well, maybe, maybe there's one last chance. But yet he doesn't do it. And so nonetheless, he breathes his last and he's gone. And so he's taken down from the cross and he's placed in a cold, cold dead man's tomb. And a stone is rolled in front of it. And it's the end. Or is it? Is there is something else that happens here? Well, Saturday rolls around. Yesterday, he's crucified. And Saturday is the first full day that Jesus' body is buried in, in a cave. And it looks like death has won. It looks like evil has won. It looks like the Roman government has been able to succeed and finally get rid of Jesus. And the guards are placed outside of the tomb because they remember what Jesus has said. Hey, remember when he said, in three days, I'm going to rise again? They said, yeah, we remember that. So they put guards outside of the tomb to make sure that no funny business is going to happen. And so that brings us up to today, to Sunday, to Resurrection Sunday. And so if you have a Bible with you, open it up to Matthew 28. Or if you've got your device, I'll go ahead and slide over to Matthew 28. And we're just going to spend a few minutes here um, and, and talk about what happened on this, this Sunday, uh, Matthew 20. This is a moment that changes absolutely everything. It changes everything in human history. Because if this moment doesn't happen, then Friday is just a day like any other day. Then Jesus was just a criminal like any other criminal. If, Friday, if, if Sunday doesn't happen, this day has no significance for us. But if the events that we read about today are true, and I believe that they are, 
If the events are true, it changes everything about human history. It changes everything about our lives today. It changes the things that we live for. It changes the things that we would be willing to die for. And so Matthew 28, verse 1. Early on Sunday morning, as the new day was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went out to visit the tomb. Suddenly there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord came down from heaven, rolled aside the stone, and sat on it. His, his face shone like lightning, and his clothing was as white as snow. I, I want you to notice what happens here in, in verse 4, because this is going to be significant in just a few minutes, okay? Verse 4, he says, The guards shook with fear when they saw him, and they fell in a dead faint. These guards who were posted outside of the tomb, they saw exactly what happened. There, there, was, there was no missing it, okay? They saw it, and when they saw it, they fell to the ground and they fainted out of fear. Verse 5, then the angel spoke to the women. Don't be afraid, he said. I know you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He isn't here. He's risen from the dead just as he said would happen. It's, I, I want to read this uh, again, and I want to ask you if you'll read it with me because I think that these are actually the one, like if, I think they're one of, if not the greatest words that have ever been recorded in history, and I really believe that, and so what I want to do is I want to read this uh, together. So would you read this in verse 6 with me? He isn't here. He's risen from the dead just as he said would happen. Guys, the significance of those words are immeasurable. When we read those words, I know that we're like cool, calm, and collected in here, okay? But when we read those words, that should make us want to stand on the edge of our seat and lift up our hands and scream, hallelujah, praise God for what you've done. You are risen. That should stir something inside of us because these words, the impact and the significance of it are just absolutely immeasurable Um, because this means that the Jesus who came to seek and to save the lost, who was going to Jerusalem to die on a cross to pay for the sin of the world, it means that he had the power and the authority over death to actually seal the deal to make this thing happen. Now, we're maybe some hot-winded people from time to time, and we can say things, and we can throw some words out there, but if it doesn't come to pass, you know, they're just words. We can't sometimes make things happen that we want to happen. We can say that we want something to be, but if we don't have the power to actually pull it off, they're just words. But if you say you're going to rise from the dead and somehow you're actually able to to pull that off, those aren't just words. There's power there. There's authority there. It means something. And if you're able to pull that off, it changes everything. The angel said to the people outside of the tomb, he said, he's not here anymore. You came to see him, but he's not here. Well, why isn't he here? Well, he's not here because he's risen from the dead, just like he said he would. That's why we're here this morning. We're here because he was risen from the dead. If that never happened, we wouldn't be here worshiping together. We wouldn't be here celebrating. We wouldn't have spent time putting nice, neat little clothes out for our kids last night. Today would have been just another day. The reason why we're here is because what was said in verse 6. He's not here anymore. He's risen, just like he said he was. And in just you case you don't believe it, he says, listen to this. Come see where his body was laying. Not where it is laying, but where it was laying. And now, go quickly and tell his disciples that he's risen from the dead. And he's going ahead of you to Galilee. You're going to see him there. Remember what I told you. What I want to do real quickly is I want to look at two different responses to the news of the resurrection 
Um, there is a response from the women who came to the tomb, and there's a different response that the guards have at the tomb. And I want to start with the ladies here who came to visit the tomb of Jesus when they um, saw what happened, when they see this, how they respond. What they do is they respond with worship. Now, they had just had this wild encounter with an angel outside of the tomb. They're, they're probably they're, they're trying to come to grips with the fact that their friend is gone. They're grieving the loss of, of somebody deeply that they've cared about. Um, I believe, too, that there, there's probably some fear and doubt that's now mixed in with that because they've been following somebody who's now, um, that they thought was going to save them, but now he's dead. He's been the backside of a tomb. So they're wrestling with all that and they're wrestling with what the angel said. And, and then, like in, in the middle of all this grieving, here's what happened. Verse 8, the women ran quickly from the tomb, and a few things happened here. They were very frightened, but they were also, at the same time of being fearful, they were filled with great joy, and they rushed to give the disciples the angel's message. They ran with the news. In verse 9, as they went, Jesus met them and greeted them. Okay, now imagine this. He's gone. They're grieving. You see an angel. He tells you that Jesus is risen. And you're running back to go tell your friends about what just happened. And then while you're running, you bump in to Jesus, the one who was just crucified and, and buried. And this is what I want you to notice. I want you to see what these women do when they see this resurrected Jesus. And they ran to him, they grasped his feet, and they worshipped him. This is how they respond. I want to say this. Go ahead and throw this slide up there. Worship is the most natural heart response to the resurrection. When you see the resurrected Jesus, when you encounter the resurrected Jesus, the natural response of our heart is to worship. Now, you may not worship, but it's a task not to worship when you experience the risen Jesus. You have to somehow try to figure out how to cover up the evidence of that if that's going to happen. Because the most natural heart response to the one who made our heart is to worship him. Now, this is amazing, okay? They fall at the feet of Jesus, and they worship him. Now, think about this. Why do they do this? The women had just spent three years with Jesus. As the disciples were growing with Jesus, they were growing with Jesus. They were there, too. As they were learning, the ladies were learning. They were watching Jesus. They were seeing how he operated. They were eating with Jesus. They were there when he healed people. They were there when he taught people. They knew what Jesus looked like. They knew what he sounded like. They knew Jesus when they saw him. That's why they fell at his feet when they saw him again, because they believed this was actually him. They recognized that this was, in fact, the Savior. If there were any doubts lingering in their minds, if there were any fear lingering in their minds that, that he's not coming back, that's all done away with right now. They see him, and they know him, and they bow at his feet. Now, I have to take a few minutes to mention something here. There are a few theories that get thrown out. Um, when we start talking about the, the resurrection and trying to make sense out of everything and try to fill in the gaps where some people say that there are some gaps, trying to answer the ultimate question, did Jesus actually raise from the dead? I mean, it's a real question, right? Because it changes everything in history. Did Jesus actually raise from the dead? Like, not was, not was he resuscitated, not was he somehow reincarnated, but was Jesus, was he killed on a cross, was he 
buried and dead for three days, and did he, did he somehow rise up from the grave and physically walk out of a tomb? Did that happen? And I've got to say that this is a question of truth. This isn't a question of preference and, and how we would like things, to, like things to be. It's not a question on whether we believe that it's comfortable or not. This is a question of truth, not a, of preference. It either happened or it didn't happen. And the implications of this are absolutely eternal. Because if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, if Sunday morning doesn't happen the way that we're celebrating Sunday morning right now, then we're just wasting our time. And the Apostle Paul said the exact same thing. If the resurrection wasn't real, if it never happened, he said, then we are to be pitied more than anybody else for two different reasons. One, because we believe the lie. And then if we believe the lie, then we're peddling the lie. He said, if the resurrection never happened, we are to be pitied more than anybody else. But if Jesus did raise from the dead, then the situation is absolutely drastically different. There's a few theories. Some people have said that Jesus didn't actually die on the cross. And that comes in a few different ways. Uh, some have said that it was actually Jesus, uh, that it wasn't actually Jesus who went to a cross. It was somehow somebody who looked like Jesus. But we have to ask the question, is that plausible? <laughs> is, that, is, is that something that, that could have actually happened? Well, it, it's plausible, but let's see if it holds any water. Um, those who were closest to Jesus on the actual day of his resurrection and after the, the resurrection, those who had seen him both before and after, who were hundreds of people actually, both Christian and non-Christian, they believed that Jesus was in fact Jesus. They had seen him and they recognized him. And there were those who, after the resurrection, who were willing to die on behalf of that information. They were willing to follow Jesus after this and to give up their life for the news that they had. Nobody could ever convince them that they, that they were, um, that, that they were uh, believing somehow uh, of a lie. So I don't think that, that there's plausibility in that. The other version of that was that Jesus didn't really die on the cross, that he looked dead, but he was just hurt really, really badly. They believe somehow that Jesus fainted on the cross and he became unconscious while he was there. And so the soldiers, they thought that Jesus was dead. And so they took him down and they buried him, but they did it a little bit too soon because while he was in the tomb, he somehow regained consciousness and later he escaped out of the tomb. Now we have to ask ourselves, is that plausible? Could that have happened? Well, maybe, but that assumes that Jesus went through six trials, that he had no sleep, he went through a brutal beating. He had thorns slammed on his head. He had nails driven through his hands and then driven through his feet. He went through hours on the cross. He fought, suffoc he fought suffocation. Um, he has a spear jabbed into his side and where both water and blood flow out to ensure that he is in fact dead. And if that weren't enough, he was wrapped up in linen cloth all around his body, but his face was also included in that. And then after all that, he somehow had the strength to roll away a stone that was covering a large opening in a tomb. And then somehow like a ninja, he had to figure out how to tiptoe past the guards to make his getaway. Seems rather unlikely, doesn't it? So what seems to be maybe plausible isn't so plausible there. There's another theory, um, and the theory was that the women went to the wrong tomb. Yeah, there was in fact an empty tomb, but it was empty because the tomb that they went to, Jesus was never actually in. It's known as the wrong tomb theory. Makes sense, right? The idea is that the women were so distraught and they were grieving so deeply that when they showed up, and maybe it was blurry eyes, maybe it's because they weren't thinking straight, that they show, somehow showed up at the wrong, uh, they somehow showed up at the wrong place. 
Now, is that plausible? Maybe. Maybe it's, it, it's plausible. But that would assume that the women and everybody else just kept going back to the wrong tomb indefinitely. They just kept going back to the wrong place. Now, surely, if that were the case, somebody along the way would have been like, hey, I think you're knocking on the wrong door. Okay? It, was the, it was the one that's right down the road. It's not the one that you're standing at, at, at right now. Somebody would have come along and said that. But let's be honest, there were guards outside of the door. The last thing that the Romans wanted to happen was that somebody would come and mess with the body. And so there's no possible way to miss the tomb that Jesus was in. So here's the reality. The ladies went to the right spot. Jesus, he wasn't there. They ran to tell the other people. And on the way, they met the risen Savior. And when they did, they fell to the ground and they worshiped. The first response that we have to realize is that we've got to believe what our eyes tell us on this, that it's true. Jesus was raised from the dead. And if he was, we respond then with worship. The resurrection of Jesus is not a matter uh, of, of our preference. It's a matter of, of reality. And so here's the, the last uh, response here, the second response from the guards at the tomb. Look at verse 11. As the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and told the leading priests what had happened. Guys, this wasn't an isolated event, okay? The guards saw everything that happened too. But watch the shady business that begins to go down in verse 12. A meeting with the elders was called, and they decided to give the soldiers a large bribe. They told the soldiers, you must say Jesus' disciples came during the night while we were sleeping, and they stole his body. If the governor hears about it, we'll stand up for, for you so that you won't get into trouble. Now, don't miss what these guys are doing here. They're asking the guards to lie and then to cover up that lie and, then, and to cover up the truth. They're saying, hey, lie about what you saw. Lie about what you saw with your own eyes. Act like it never happened. And if you do, we'll pay you a large sum of money to try to make it worth your time. Now, in our day and age, guys, this is called extortion, or this is called tampering with the evidence, or this is called perjury, right? You would go to prison for this kind of stuff if you get found out uh, about this. And there's a problem with what's going on. The guards, they would have to deny that they saw what they saw with their own eyes, they would have to deny all their training as a soldier. They would have to give up their character. They would have to give up their integrity. They would have to give up everything that they have to perpetuate the lie um, that was made up by the other leaders. And don't forget what happened in verse 4. Remember I said it was an important verse? The guards shook with fear when they saw him. And then they fell in a dead faint. They know that this is true. And so what did they do with this bribe? Verse 15. So the guards accepted the bribe. Then they just let you down. They accepted the bribe and said what they were told to say. Their story spread widely amongst the Jews, and they still tell it today. These guys, they took the money. They set aside their intellectual morality. They set aside their duty to the truth. They set aside what they had seen with their own eyes, and they went along with a lie. And the story that the disciples came and stole the body of Jesus has been going on ever since that time. It's what scripture tells us, and we see it happen today. Some of us in the room right now may even be believing some version of that story that Jesus didn't really raise. Somebody came in and stole his body. So what happened after the resurrection? Then what? I think there were two different responses at the empty tomb. Some fell to the feet of Jesus, and they worshiped. Others covered up the truth, and they lived out a lie for the rest of their lives. And then they passed that lie on from generation to generation to generation. And I've got to ask you, what's the story that you tell yourself about Jesus? What are the gaps that you filled in over the course of a lifetime? 
What's the story that you're telling yourself about Jesus? I still think there's really just two responses today. Our brains want whole stories. In the absence of all the details, when people weren't there, our minds want to fill in the gaps with the details, whether they're true or not. And as people who weren't there, as you and me, we truly have to rely on those who were there to tell us the details. We have to rely on the scriptures to tell us the details, to help us fill in the gaps so that we can have the whole story. And so instead of those other options, maybe this for an option, how about we believe what Jesus tells us in his word? How about we believe those who were there, the hundreds of people who saw Jesus after the resurrection? How about we believe what went down there at the cross? How about we believe what went down there at, at the tomb, that he actually died and he was actually raised from the dead? And when we put the whole story together, these are the details that actually fill in the gaps. It's not about our preferences or what makes us comfortable. It's about the truth and the reality that, that, we, that, we, that we find. And like I said earlier, I don't necessarily want to change your mind this morning. <laughs> Maybe I do. Maybe I do. But what I really want you to do I hope that what we've done is but in, in some little way filled in some of the gaps that maybe you have in the story. And as we fill in the gaps to realize that every one of us, we tell ourselves this different story about Jesus. And I want to make sure that the story that you're telling yourself is the actual story that Jesus tells us about himself. And it's the story that we read about that happened not just this Easter, but happened thousands of Easter's uh, ago. And so for us, the resurrection of Jesus is a big deal. And I believe that it happened. But I believe that what happened after the resurrection is the biggest deal for us right now in the room. And so we asked the question, what happens next? Jesus rose from the dead. Then what? What do you do with that information? How do you personally respond to the resurrection of Jesus? How do you fill in the gaps? Where, where, where are you fitting it in? Where, would you pray with me? Father, thanks for time together with my friends, friends that I've known for a while and new friends in the room. Thanks for the truth and the reality of the resurrection. Thank you that over 2,000 years ago, that what was planned even before that to deal with the sin of the world, Jesus, you fulfilled. You went to a cross, you gave up your life, you spilled your blood, and you were raised from the dead to seal the deal. Thank you for that. I'm going to pray that there are people in the room who have been filling in the gaps, maybe with half-truths or not even the partial or just part pieces of the truth, that they would trust your son Jesus right now, that today would be a day where they stake their claim in the ground on Jesus and they are welcomed into the family of God. And I pray for the encouragement of our faith, uh, of those who have trusted Jesus years ago, that today is a day that we just keep remembering what Jesus did for us to secure eternity with him in, in, in the future. And so... Thanks for Easter. Thanks for the resurrection. We are changed because of it in Jesus' name. Amen.